Thank you for listening to the weekly podcast of Community Bible Church in Savannah, Georgia. We hope you'll enjoy this sermon from our series on the book of Ruth. For more information about CBC, or how to get plugged in, or to listen to another sermon, visit us on the website, cbcsavannah.com. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, uh, you who look down from the heavens, somehow you know the end from the beginning, every little tiny intricate thing. Father, our world was interrupted sort of obviously uh, last weekend uh, by just such a clear uh, evidence of the evil that, that exists in the hearts of of human beings, and yet we know that all over the world every day, uh, wicked men are doing wicked things and and people are suffering. And and just as I just said, Lord, we would ask as your people uh, that Jesus would come quickly and that he would restore peace to this world um, and that he would reign in righteousness, because that's what we need, God. We need a righteous king to rule over us, and we look forward to the day uh, when Jesus does return to be that king. Father, we would ask uh, that you would help us to follow his example. Uh, He came, he suffered, he died, he did not revile, uh, though he was reviled, Um, and then he he rose from the dead and he ascended, and Father, may may we follow the example that he has set for us. Uh, that we would not revile when we are reviled, that we would use ourselves up uh, as servants to the people around us, that we would speak the truth in love. God, that if you would call us to, that we would even lay down our lives uh, for the sake of you, for the sake of seeing people come to Christ. And so uh, now, Lord, as we turn to your word, Father, just, just grant your spirit to open hearts, uh, to, to open eyes to the truths that we find here. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, open your Bibles, uh, if you have them, to Ruth chapter four. This won't be the last sermon. Bill's gonna be back next week. He'll he'll finish out one more sermon at the very end of Ruth chapter four. But let me just take you, uh, just remind you all the way back to the beginning. Uh, The beginning of the book of Ruth opens with the simple phrase, in the days of the judges, uh, when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And then if you turn back just one page to the very last verse of the book of Judges, we read, in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so when Elimelech and Naomi take their two boys, Malon and Kilion, to Moab, what we know is that it is a day of physical famine, but it is also a day of spiritual famine in the land. Everybody is doing what is right in their own eyes. If you've read the book of Judges, especially those last few chapters, it's pretty horrific what goes on. And and even in light of what's going on in our world today, when it's been such a sobering week, uh, we can easily say that we live in a day, once again, when, when everybody does what is right in their own eyes. And what's kind of cool is I've sat where you are for the last three weeks. I've heard the book of Ruth explained. I've heard it uh, expounded. Uh, And so what I've walked away from 
uh, over the last three weeks is that I see in the book of Ruth the power of love shining in the darkness. And that's very trite, I know. It's a Huey Lewis song, for crying out loud. It, it, this, is not, you know, this is not deep truth, and that, that's part of the problem, right? The part of the problem these days is that there's this power of love. Everybody agrees with that statement, and yet that, that word has become so misused and, and, and abused that it can be thrown away, thrown around, and it, it, it doesn't mean much. So love is a real thing. Love means something. Love for God and love for our neighbor is actually what the world needs. But how can we explain that? How can we explain love to those who would rather just go around doing what is right in their own eyes? And so I think from the book of Ruth, what we can see is that love is best understood when it is lived out. And we see that. It's interesting to me. Paul writes a whole chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, just giving things that love is. There's no definition there. And then in the gospel, uh, the, the first epistle of John, John says, by this we know love, that he, speaking of Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Jesus' life defines love for us in that it was a servant's life, and it was sacrificial. And then since week one in the book of Ruth, Bill has highlighted this this word, hesed. It's a a word that in the Hebrew, it's difficult to translate into English. Uh, He he, he has defined it as steadfast love. He defined it one week, I don't know if you remember, as stubborn love. I I, I like that, stubborn love. One, One writer calls it love with no exit strategy. And so when you love with hesed love, you bind yourself to an object no matter the circumstances. Hesed love remains steadfast no matter how people treat you. Hesed love remains faithful in sickness and in health for richer, for poorer, till death to us part. That's hesed love. And we see hesed love in the gospel when Paul says God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. And so Boaz, I want us to look at Boaz this morning as an example of Hesed love. We don't have to define it. I just want to look at him and I want to see it. And Boaz speaks love, but then he backs it up with his actions. And uh, I got to tell you, as we've walked through Ruth, uh, Boaz has become a little bit of a hero of mine. Uh, there's, there's really not much here to say about him that is negative. And so we're going to see the climax of this story. Bill left us hanging last week. Naomi and Ruth, they've come up with a really good plan. Uh, Boaz likes the idea, but there's a wrinkle. There's another redeemer. There's a closer redeemer than Boaz. And so the question that we were left with last week was, is Boaz going to get to marry Ruth and redeem Naomi's land, or will this other redeemer step in and ruin the story. Well, today, we're going to see Boaz and how he demonstrates love for God and love for Ruth in a way that's radical, more important than the climax of the story. You know, people throw around that word radical, too. But I I think the way that Boaz loves Ruth, the way he treats her, 
is truly radical in every sense of the word. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to just walk straight through the story. I, I know uh, we've kind of been, uh, the way Bill's been doing it, he's been kind of stopping at different points to make points. I, I think that this, this uh, you know, wrapping up is so good that we're just going to walk right through it. And then at the end, we're going to make three points uh, that we want to learn about, about Boaz and the Hesed love that he displays and the Hesed love that, that God displays um, that, we, that we see in him. All right, so... Let's, uh, let's jump back into the story. Um, join me back just quickly at Ruth chapter 3, verses 12 through 13. Um, okay, so, so Luke, uh, Ruth last week has put all of her chips on the table, okay? In the middle of the night, she went in, she curls up at Boaz's feet. This was the ultimate attempt to define the relationship, all right? I, I need to know what's going on here. I, I, I tried this. Uh, one time, the, the, I defined the relationship one time with Erica. You know, we had been going out uh, for like a while. And I, you know, I was, I, we, were, we like went and we were sitting at a table, I remember. And I, you know, I was like, all right, you know, so what is this? I think there's something more going on here. And she's like, no, we're just friends. <laughs> so awkward. Forget I brought it up. Never mind. Uh, so, so Ruth sort of does the ultimate DTR here, and uh, she goes to, to Boaz and she says, you know, I want you to marry me. Uh, I, I want you to redeem me. She takes a huge risk. Her risk pays off. It turns out Boaz has indeed fallen for Ruth. Uh, he has feelings for her. He is in love with her, I would say. He loves her, but, and this is crucial, he is not in lust with her, all right? He loves her with a love that honors God and that honors her because he's a worthy man and Ruth is not his idol, God is his God and so he doesn't say, great, we're both really into this, let's get it done at all cost. He doesn't say that. He insists on doing it right. And so what he says then, uh, Ruth 3, 12 through 13, and now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I, remain tonight and in the morning, if he will redeem you good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until morning. All right, what we need to talk about here, and if you, if you do any searching for Ruth on the internet, one of the things you'll come up with is this idea of a kinsman redeemer. All right, let me just take a moment uh, because it's, it's very important to what we're talking about. What you need to understand regarding a kinsman redeemer, a person who is a near relative, is that in the Old Testament, the land that you had been given in your inheritance was so very, very important. It was a huge deal. Uh, it was an important part of what it meant to be a part of the people of God. And so if an Israelite was forced to sell off their land to pay off debts or something like that, um, then there would be a desire to keep that land in the family. And so the next of kin, uh, a brother-in-law, a brother or somebody like that, would buy it back, a.k.a. redeem it, okay? So when you think of the word redeemer, think of those two words, buying back. That's what's going on, all right? But then there's this other kind of weird responsibility uh, of a redeemer. Uh, it was sanctioned by God. This sounds very strange to us, but when a man died, if he had no son, the nearest relative of the deceased would, was obliged to marry the widow and then raise up a son that would have the brother's name, the dead brother's name, okay? So that child that was a result of that union would grow up and would inherit 
that land. I know this is very strange, uh, but, but we, we find this a couple of different times in the scriptures. And so you can see, what I want you to understand is that for that kinsman redeemer, there was great cost because not only was he responsible to buy the field, keep the field, raise the child, but then one day that field would become the property of that child and of that child's family name separate from the redeemer, all right? And so in this story, Naomi thought Boaz was the closest redeemer, but she was wrong. There was a closer redeemer. But Boaz has a plan. He is not a passive man. He has a plan, and so he gets up the next morning, and he puts his plan into action. Look with me at uh, verses 1 and 2. We're in chapter 4 now. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the redeemer whom Boaz had spoken of came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and sat down and said, sit down here. So they sat down. Now, Boaz was a shrewd businessman. Please, when you think of ancient Israel, don't picture them like cavemen, all right? They may not have had documents and they may not have had computers with files on them, but they had a way of doing deals. And, and, and Boaz knows that, okay? And he is just operating in the way that anybody would operate in that day. Um, the writer there says, behold. It's almost like the writer is winking at us. Like, so Boaz goes to the gate and behold, the Redeemer comes through the gate. See, God is behind this. This is the providence of God here. So Boaz invites him to sit down. He goes and he gets 10 men who are elders of the city. They're going to be a witness to this deal. And so far, Boaz's plan is working out just fine. All right, there's one little interesting little note here that I want to point out before we continue. When Boaz says, turn aside, friend, he uses this really impersonal little Hebrew phrase that could be translated probably best, so-and-so. Turn aside, so-and-so, and come here and sit in the gate with me. Now, throughout this book, names have been really important, okay? My kids are saying, who's your daddy, all the time <laughs> these days, all right? So, so in a book where names have been really, really important, it has got to be significant that the author decides to call this guy so-and-so. So more on that later. Just hang on to that for a second, and we're going we're gonna to come back to that. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the land of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Now, first of all, Mr. So-and-so seems like the only guy in Bethlehem that doesn't know about this story, right? Even, even the guys who worked for Boaz before, you know, Boaz comes and says, who is this girl? And they say, oh, haven't you heard? Naomi and Ruth, they came back, and Ruth is, is this, this worthy woman who has come back to serve. So Mr. So-and-so already has this sense of somebody who is not paying attention, which is especially interesting because he's the nearer relative. So Boaz brings him up the speed. Here's the deal. Naomi has come back. She's, she's destitute. She's come back from Moab. Uh, she needs to sell her land. Here is your chance to redeem it in the presence of these witnesses. If you want it, take it. If not, I'll buy it. Now, try to hear this 
like you don't know the story, if you're familiar with it, okay? Mr. So-and-so says, I will redeem it. Now, I don't know if, if, if Boaz's heart dropped here. I don't know how confident he was that Mr. So-and-so was going to eventually renege on this deal. But Fowler talked a, a couple of weeks ago about taking risks. And Boaz has taken a risk here. But, but again, just notice, Ruth is not an idol. He loves Ruth. He wants to make sure she's taken care of. If the Redeemer redeems her, great. If not, he is happy to do it. But he's willing to let Ruth go. He's not going to sin to get what he wants. But also, Boaz hasn't laid all his cards on the table either. Because in order for Mr. So-and-so to get this land, at this point, he would set the price for the land. And he would set it probably fairly high. And in these kind of negotiations, you don't want to be the first to set a price. And so Mr. So-and-so wants to redeem the land. He sets the price, but Boaz hasn't mentioned Ruth yet. And at this point, Boaz is about to play the rest of his hand. Now, it seems as though Boaz is not very impressed with Mr. So-and-so here. He, he seems to almost know that this is a guy who just wants to make a buck. And so Boaz uses his mind. He strategizes. And some have suggested, well, is Boaz being dishonest here by not talking about the existence of Ruth at this point? And I think absolutely not. This guy's a nearer relative. If he wanted to do the deal, he should know about Ruth and Naomi. I, I think that Boaz knows the man, he knows the situation, and he acts in wisdom to get it done. And Christian, I want you to know this, young people, old people, all of us, there is nothing wrong with using our minds and making plans in God's wisdom to get things done. Boaz is a man of action. Boaz is a man who uses his mind and he strategizes and he figures it out how to get it done. Jesus says the same thing when he tells his disciples to go out in pairs in Matthew chapter 10 when they're going out to, to, the, to, to reach Israel in pairs. He says, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be as wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Hey, I'm sending you out. People are going to want to take advantage of you. People are going to want to devour you. You go out there. You accomplish this work in love. Strategize. Use all the resources that you have in God's practical wisdom. But you be as innocent as doves. You don't ever have any motive or method that would undermine your allegiance to Jesus as king. And sadly, a lot of Christians today are more guilty as serpents and dumb as doves. And they go out and they don't use their minds and they get themselves into situations where they have no business. Boaz is a godly man, but Boaz is a man who thinks. So verse 5, Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. This changes everything. Now there's a cost, a higher cost associated with redeeming the land. And Ruth is part of the bargain. And there might be a son. And then he'll have to give the son and the land back to the family of Malon. If this was a movie, here's the tension. There'd be like 
drum music playing in the background right here. All the cards are on the table. Boaz is waiting. What's what's Mr. So-and-so going to do? The ten elders of the city are waiting to see what happens. So we see in verse 6, Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Assuming that Mr. Boaz knew what Mr. So-and-so, what kind of man that he was from the beginning, I think he probably knew that Mr. So-and-so was a man that wanted to be comfortable and wealthy. So Naomi and Ruth, not only do they not sweeten the deal, they make it worse. They cost money. They, 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 they require, they don't make any money. They're a mess, and Mr. So-and-so is not interested in stepping into that mess. Look at what he says. It's almost painful to think that this nameless guy is remembered for all eternity in God's word as having said, I cannot redeem it because it would harm my inheritance. Mr. So-and-so is a man who lives for this life. He is a man who lives for the bottom line. He has no room for love because it might cost him something. And twice in this verse, he is recorded as saying, I cannot redeem it. His bank account is God and he has no room for love. Look at verses 7 through 10. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon, also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought her to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses to this day. And the main point there is that Boaz seals the deal. And even here, Boaz shows his character. Y'all, in, in ancient Israel and in the New Testament, widows were a big deal. Like, You were supposed to care for widows. You were supposed to care for widows and orphans. Care for those who were destitute among you. For this man to say, I will not redeem her because it would cost me my inheritance, was he was kind of a scoundrel. And I think it actually shows the character of Boaz because look, this is, I know this is getting a little, a little in the weeds, but look with me at Deuteronomy 25, all right? If, anybody, if, you, if anybody's done their quiet time in Deuteronomy lately, maybe you've seen this. Deuteronomy 25, 7 through 10. Follow me here. If a man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders, pull his sandal off his feet, and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his father's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. (laughs) That's some serious stuff. At least (laughs) Mr. So-and-so is one thing, but to be known as the guy who had your sandal pulled off, that's really, really devastating. So I think that chances are Boaz is actually doing 
uh, Mr. So-and-so a favor here by not bringing Naomi to the gate that morning. And uh, thankfully, as, as far as Mr. So-and-so is concerned, uh, Boaz is anxious to, to, to marry Ruth, and he's not looking to shame uh, the, the potential redeemer. The other thing I just want to point out here, too, because just to, to make a point Bill made a couple of weeks ago, too, Boaz is so clear. Hey, guys, in the gate, gather around. I'm buying the land, and just to make my intentions clear, I am marrying Ruth. It's going to happen. It's going to happen soon. And there's a big celebration, y'all. Look at verse 11 and 12. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, and together build up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give to this young woman. If I was making this into a movie, I would take a little creative license here and have Naomi and Ruth walking up to the gate, you know, just as the marriage proclamation. And Naomi's crying. Ruth runs to Boaz's arms. Mr. So-and-so is sort of slinking away. And everybody is cheering. Everybody's happy. It's a big celebration. Good people have found each other, they've, they've done love, they've acted lovingly towards each other, and now, best of all, they're gonna get married. Uh, th- these blessings are interesting. There's, there's a little bit of tension here that we're not gonna see revolved, resolved until next week. Ruth hasn't had a baby. She was married for 10 years in Moab to Malon, and she has not had a child. It's interesting to me that the blessing is, may you be like Rachel and Leah. God opens the womb. God opens the womb. So the tension is, okay, Boaz is going to marry Ruth, but will she be able to raise up a child to redeem Malon's land? Check back next week to find the answer to that. The second one is also interesting, and you can go, they don't have a, Perez and Tamar, it's in Genesis chapter 28. We don't do a lot of um, Sunday school flannel graphs about that one. You can go and read it later. Um, Suffice it to say, Tamar is another foreign woman. And she is another foreign woman who gets sort of left to her own devices by the things that happen to her, but God preserves her and God blesses her. And interestingly, she and Ruth both become very important to the story of redemption as we go along, all right? All right, well, let's, let's bring this to a conclusion. Uh, don't put your Bibles away yet. I, I want to I make some points here because we haven't really stopped along the way. Um, the first point, uh, well, let me say this. Um, let's take a closer look at Boaz because we've seen he's a worthy man. And we can see that he, he, he issues that, he evidences that by his love for God and his love for others. In our day, the feeling of love is sacred. There's no room for wisdom, okay? Our feelings trump everything. Our feelings lead to physical intimacy before marriage. Therefore, leaving a marriage because the feelings aren't there anymore makes perfect sense. And our feelings lead us to find intimacy somewhere other than our spouse. And in movies and in songs and in uh, Novels today that are being produced, you, you find love described as, hey, if you're in love with somebody, don't think, just feel. Just do what seems right. Boaz thinks that's stupid, all right? Boaz is the kind of guy who would say that's, that's dumb. 
because he embodies love that is wise and he embodies love that is costly. Let's look at wise love for just a second. Back to the threshing floor. There is Ruth. She is laying at the feet of Boaz. There's affection between the two of them. They're alone together. But Boaz stops right there and he says, wait a second, we're going to do this right. There's another redeemer. We're going to find out if he wants to redeem you first and then we'll get married. Let's contrast that with what Boaz does not say. Boaz does not say, I want this, you want this, it feels right, let's make it happen. He does not say that. And what we see here is Boaz's heart. He loves God more than he loves Ruth. If God is the center of our affection, then all of our lesser affections have to submit to him. That's wise love. Wise love loves God first. I am not loving anyone by doing or saying anything that disregards God's commands. And we could unpack this in a dozen practical ways, but let me be clear about this this morning because I think it's relevant. You don't love your boyfriend or your girlfriend by being intimate with them before you are being married. In fact, you are sinning against God and you are sinning against them. That is what the Bible says. The so-called love that we see on TV and at the movies is a lie. Young ladies, I exhort you to find a man who loves Jesus absolutely, positively more than he loves you. Run the other direction from any man who would say that he is going to disobey God because he loves you. Because anyone who is willing to dishonor God by acting according to their feelings now will be happy to dishonor you according to their feelings later. So in a room with this many people, we are bound to have some people who have failed miserably in this area, and I would just say to you, repent, seek forgiveness, confess your sin to God, confess your sin to one another. Young men, if you have failed in this area, take the lead and go and say, I have sinned against you in claiming that I loved you by disobeying God. And then establish that by the grace of God, you are gonna employ every means necessary to love God more. If you're married now, but the past hangs over you and the guilt of the past hangs over you, I would say to you, do the same thing. Men, go to your wife. Ask forgiveness for failing to protect her even before you were married. And maybe today, for the first time, you see that your love for sin and your desire to do what seems right to you has separated you from God. Well, Christ died so that you can have forgiveness from that sin. And let me say, the good news is that you do not have to clean up that act before you come to him. Which leads me then to the second point that I want to make about love, and that is this. Love is costly. Love is wise. Love is costly. Naomi and Ruth needed a redeemer. They were destitute. Without a husband or a son, Naomi had no inheritance. She had no hope. She needed a kinsman redeemer to buy back what she had lost. Maybe you've heard the word redeemer associated with Jesus. Sometimes we even use the word redemption to refer to salvation. What we mean by redeemer and redemption is that Jesus has bought us back from hopelessness and death. His death paid the price so that those who believe once again can have hope of life after we die and hope even, and the Bible has a lot to say about this, of of an inheritance that is with our Father awaiting us in heaven. So just as Boaz redeems Naomi and Ruth, so Jesus has redeemed us. Mark 10.45 says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life a ransom for many. Boaz redeemed Ruth and Naomi, and it cost him. Jesus has redeemed us, and it was costly to him. It cost us life. From this we learn that biblical love is indeed costly. Look at the contrast between Boaz and Mr. So-and-so. Mr. So-and-so wants the land, but he doesn't want to do anything with Naomi and Ruth. His idol is himself. It's his responsibility to help this relative out who is in need. And he says, I I cannot redeem it because I would impair my inheritance. Translation, I won't redeem it because it costs me too much. I won't do it. I don't want to pay that price. And so he represents the easy come, easy go, love of the world. What's in it for me? What do I get out of this deal? Give me the bottom line. And if it doesn't cost me so much, I'll check into it. Boaz doesn't care about the mess. Let's just ignore the cost of buying the land for a second. And think about this. Boaz is, he's not just taking on Ruth. He is caring for an old widow. He's taking that on. And he is willing to marry Ruth, who is not just a widow, but she is a foreigner. She is the lowest of the low in that society. Ruth has a past. She was a citizen of Moab. Moabites worshipped the god Chemosh. She worshipped a false god. When she said to Naomi, where where you go, I will go, and your God will be my God, she said, I'm not going to follow Chemosh. Chemosh, we have, uh, in in 1 Kings, they're sacrificing uh, sons to Chemosh. Who knows what Ruth did in her past? But when she turns and she follows Yahweh, she leaves the past behind, and she says, no, I'm going to follow a different God. And Boaz says, that's great, I will, I will welcome that into my home. He's okay with the mess. He's okay with the cost. He's okay with Ruth's past. Hey, if it ruins my reputation, that's fine. I love her, and I'm going to do what's right. And so in the midst of the tragedy that is around us, and it's all over the place, y'all, What is it that's going to cause us as followers of Jesus to stand out in that darkness? And I would say it is our willingness to engage in love that costs our money, our time, our reputation, and even our lives. We serve a God who cares deeply for the destitute in society. We serve a God who became a man in the person of Jesus Christ and became a servant and even died on a cross, the most excruciatingly horrible death ever conceived of. We serve a king who washed the feet of the guy who was going to betray him the night before his death. So here's a good question for us this morning, and this is not an easy question. It's this. When we hold the mirror that is God's Word up to our hearts, who are we more like, Mr. So-and-so or Boaz? And I just ask you to think about that this morning. Because Mr. So-and-so says this, I will love to a point, but at a certain cost, I'm out. Mr. So-and-so says, widows, foreigners, poor, destitute, that's just a big mess. Mr. So-and-so says, I'll sacrifice to a point, but when it starts to touch my savings, my comfort, my retirement, that just wouldn't be wise right now. Listen to what Jesus says. In, in, uh, in Luke chapter 12, somebody comes up to Jesus and says, uh, help us negotiate this dispute that we are having about our inheritance. And Jesus says, you need to be on guard against covetousness. And then he says this, 
The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do, for I have nowhere to store up my crops? And he said, I will do this, I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store my grain and my goods, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. I'm afraid many in churches today would be sympathetic to Mr. So-and-so's position. Of course that's not wise to take that on. But really, Mr. So-and-so, he's an example of the guy who tries to save his life and loses it. Now, Boaz. Boaz says, I will love because it's right. I will allow my bank account to be depleted for the sake of others. I will love and cherish Ruth even if my reputation is hurt. I will tolerate the mess in my bachelor pad and I will accept a new life. It may be different, but whatever God has for me, I'll have it. And you know Boaz isn't losing, right? Hundreds of years later, Jesus comes to earth and he says, don't lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Lay up yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal for where your treasure is there your heart will be also. Did I say heaven in that first sentence? I'm in earth. Kind of ruins the whole point there, doesn't it? Boaz is just sending it on. He's sending the resources ahead to heaven. He's investing in eternity. Mr. So-and-so tried to save his inheritance and lost it all when he died. Think about this. Whose name is written down all these hundreds of years later for us to remember? Is it Boaz or Mr. So-and-so? We're here talking about Boaz today. Who do you think God was more pleased with in that situation? Uh, this week, a guy by the name of Robertson McQuilkin went home to be the Lord. He was, he was 88 years old. Maybe some of you have heard of him. Um, he was president of Columbia Bible College in 1990, but he resigned uh, to become the full-time caregiver of his wife, Muriel, who had Alzheimer's. And he did this because she was much happier with him than without him. Let me just, I want to read a few things that he said uh, about her. Um, he said, people who do not know me have said, well, you always said God first, family second, ministry third, but I've never said that. To put God first means that all other responsibilities he gives are first too. Sorting out responsibilities that seem to conflict, however, is tricky business. When the time, when the time came, the decision was firm. It took no great calculation. It was a matter of integrity. Had I not promised 42 years before in sickness or in health till death do us part, this was no grim duty to which I was stoically resigned. However, it was only fair. She had, after all, cared for me for almost four decades with marvelous devotion. Now it was my turn, and such a partner she was. If I took care of her for 40 years, I would never be out of her debt. That's Hesed love. That's stubborn love. That's love that is not looking for an exit strategy. Real quick, as we go. Love celebrates good things. Just notice at the end of the passage, all the people gather in the gate, and they're excited. They're excited for Ruth. 
They're excited for Boaz and Ruth as they come together. Remember, these are the days of the judges. Every man's doing right in his own eyes. There's sin and there's, there's suffering everywhere. And even in the midst of that, God is quietly loving people. The people of God are quietly loving each other. And they stop to celebrate this really good thing that happens in Boaz and Ruth. And I have no doubt that in heaven, the father with his angels was celebrating too. It was a joyous occasion. We still live in a world of sin and suffering. We know that. But we know that God is working all things for good. We know that he is the giver of all good things. We know that he even gives good things to those who don't know him. So I would encourage you this week, turn off Fox News and look around for the good things that God is doing. Rejoice in a wedding between a godly young couple. Rejoice in the birth of a new baby. Celebrate with other people that they're coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Most of all, rejoice that in spite of everything, your name is written in the book of life. Do you know there's joy in obedience? Overcoming temptation is hard. But when you obey Jesus, there is blessing there. I don't want you to see this as just some kind of like, oh, I have to endure. Man, I believe with all my heart that when you do the right thing, when you love God more than anything else, when you make that hard choice, when you fight temptation, at the end, God is there to let you know that he is pleased with you and there is joy there and there is blessing. And so if we as people today will live wise sacrificial, loving lives, celebrating the joy of the good things that God gives us, then I believe that we will indeed be light to the people who dwell in darkness. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this beautiful story. Thank you for Boaz. Thank you for Ruth. Thank you that we get to see love played out in him, Hesed love. And we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for what he did, for the Hesed stubborn love that you have shown us in him. May we be people who love wisely. May we be people who love in a costly, sacrificial way. And may we be people who celebrate the good things that you have done for us. In Christ's name, amen.